this, Dutch? You never were that smart. This podcast will make you a goddamn sexual tyrannosaurus. Welcome to Predator Minute, the podcast that breaks down the 1987 action sci-fi classic Predator one minute at a time. Uh, Today we'll be discussing Minute 11, but before we do, we have a new guest to introduce. Um, Our guest today is Scott Fogel. Scott, say hi. Hello. Thank you for uh, having me join your podcast. Anytime. (laughs) <laughs> so once again, we are uh, short my natural co-host, Aaron, my brother. Uh, he's out in Zimbabwe doing doctor stuff. So he is unfortunately just out of commission here and there over the weekends, which is when we record. So unfortunately, missing out on my co-host. But fortunately, there are a lot of people out there who I know and we're in my own family and my circle of friends who want to talk Predator. So I am hashtag blessed to talk about Hashtag predator. And I'm hashtag blessed to be invited. So thanks again. You're welcome. Anytime. Like I said, hashtag anytime. Uh, We'll be discussing minute 11 in a moment. But before we do, uh, Scott, do you want to share any favorite predator memories or the first time you saw a predator? Yeah, actually, um, it's been interesting. The, the, the experience of listening to several of your previous minutes got me thinking about a lot of things. And it's nice that I'm in the same exact age group as you. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of running down after I wake up on Saturday, making some cereal and finding a good Schwarzenegger click, flick. And um, I spent a lot of mornings doing that. So this was right in my sweet spot in terms of um, the presence of Arnold and all the other stuff you talked about in previous minutes. But Predator um, in and of itself really does stand out for me. It's always been one of my favorites. And it's something that I've been able to watch over and over um, repeatedly. And it doesn't get old. And I think that has a lot to do with some of the stuff you and Aaron talked about regarding the concise nature of it and uh, really put together and everything having a purpose. Not to mention all the Arnold one-liners and the larger-than-life cast. Um, I've really started watching the movie a little differently since listening to your podcast and looking for a lot more stuff. But awesome. my favorite stuff is the the one-liners, the realization of... The hunter, the flip in the scenario for these guys who are like the uber hunters that are out there that all of a sudden are becoming the hunted. It's just a great flick. I love it. Yeah. No, wow. That was an awesome recap of what we've been doing, but also what we have to look ahead. Um, I I tend to start to watch one of the minutes for research. And then I just say to myself, well, I'm just going to watch like a couple more minutes, just like give it context. I need to watch a couple more minutes. And then I'm like... Fully engrossed in the movie again, I'm like ah, I've fallen in the movie trap. I'm I'm watching the whole thing again, and that, that's happened more than one time, which is a testament to why Aaron and I chose to talk about this movie and um, why it has so many fans, in my opinion. Oh, I just wanted to say one thing that has still surprisingly stood out is really paying attention to uh, Alan Silvestri and the whole musical score soundtrack piece of it. I didn't realize how much intertwined, how much tendrils are connected between so many of these movies from the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I hear it in just the way you hear the noises and you're like, hey, that sounds just like Lethal Weapon or that sounds just like X, Y, or Z. And it's really amazing how small a world that really is. Yeah, totally. For me, uh, when I hear the 
soundtracks, especially in any kind of chase scenes in this movie. I totally am thinking about Back to the Future because he did that just a few years prior. And that's, you know, up to this point, probably his well most well-known work. But yeah, like you hear all sorts of, I don't even know what you call them, just just like the little chase scenes, like when you hit the high-pitched notes. And I'm thinking, oh, it's like Back to the Future chase scenes. Or like you're saying, other action movies are going to have those little musical cues. And yeah, we'll talk a little bit about the music in this minute because we do start to hear again some pieces of his score. Absolutely. And it's super impactful. But this is minute 11. Minute 11 opens with Dylan's point of view looking down into the jungle and ends with Dutch's squad silently starting a jungle hike. And since you're the guest, Scott, I would open it up to you and ask, what do you want to talk about first? Uh, with regard to this minute, it's it's pretty straightforward, but there's a lot of nuance, uh, as every, everything else you guys have discussed, that really kind of uh, set the tone for these guys are dropping into a world um, that is no longer on their terms. You really get the sense, like, even when the helicopter's flying over, you see the top of the jungle trees and then, like, a dark, ambiguous under canopy, which they don't know what they're really getting into. Ooh. And I'll wait to talk about the music, but I really think that sets the stage for um, what they're getting into. Sweet. Yeah, it's like entering another world, essentially. Just going from the, right, whatever lives they're coming from to meet again as a squad to diving into this uh, new world, this uh, unknown. Well, and you get to see they are down to business. Like, it's go time. What's nice about this minute is the lines of dialogue are right up front, so it gives us a little natural divide where we'll talk about the lines and then we'll talk about the action. So McTiernan did this scene well as he's doing every scene throughout this movie, in my opinion, really well, where he gives us some lines of dialogue, short, snappy, and then um, drops us into the action. And today's lines of dialogue have Dylan looking out the window saying, never knew how much I I miss this Dutch and Dutch looking back at him just quietly saying and with a big grin on his not grin maybe a smirk maybe a little bit of just like this condescending look saying you never were that smart and there's a lot of things you could read into that um one thing I took away from this exchange was Dutch saying like you don't really know what you're actually going to get yourself into here you don't know what we're dropping into so yeah you might say you missed this but um this this isn't what you remember or you're <laughs> you're watching this with like you know Dylan you're you have your and you're not taking this seriously enough or nearly seriously seriously enough yeah I get the impression that first of all that grin and that look like you said there's a lot of subtle nuance to that which speaks to the evolution of of uh, Arnold's acting abilities which I really mm-hmm. like but I think one of the messages you get there is that Dylan doesn't necessarily see the whole big long-term picture. He's just dealing with what's in front of him in an opportunistic way. And I think Dutch is kind of going, hey, well, now you're coming into this and you didn't think it all the way through, but there's no turning back. Right. I also like the fact that um, you can tell when Dylan says, I never knew how much I missed this Dutch. There really is a lot of apprehension all of a sudden, like the reality of the moment is hitting him. Right, right, right. Like you're not seeing, like you're saying, you're not seeing the long, the long of this. You're not- yeah, his lack of being in the field has made him very focused on the short term opportunistic what's right in front of him and not thinking out the entire campaign. Uh, during the exchange between Dutch and Dylan, you can still see the lights behind Dutch, uh, the solid red along with a flashing yellow to the left of the red. And then as soon as he says, you never were that smart, it just buzzes and the green light flashes on like this uh, kind of buzz 
But I, I like being able to look really deeply into this stuff because to me, that's almost like a game show buzzer saying like, you're right. Or actually, I guess the buzz in a game show would be like, you're wrong. So maybe, oh my gosh, if it's like a you're wrong kind of buzz, that's to mean that Dylan is like thinking about other things. He's already thinking ahead of uh, the game, right? Like when they're going to raid the guerrilla village, like what they're actually after and what the whole cabinet minister situation really is. And that Dutch is the one who's going to be looking silly at the end. So we'll, we'll deep dive. So the red to the yellow to the green it's the first time watching this or when i was watching this minute or the first time isolated that's when i was noticing oh it's like uh, a red light telling you to go it's like it's go time it's time to open the doors and start repelling and start emptying the chopper um, but did you have anything to say about um, the lighting well not just the actual colors of the lights themselves but much like the rest of the opening part of this movie the use of the lighting to create whatever necessary mood um the director's mm. trying to do mm -hmm. and you see you know the rest of the whole chopper ride is in this like washed out red light and everything changes right. the yellow all of a sudden you know brings natural skin color a little bit more to life and then the green light you only see it for a split second but it and then boom you're outside the chopper from a camera point of view so the, I, i'm curious to know what that might be a entailing and whether that has any uh coupling to reality for what military uh lighting in a chopper is like right yeah i mean that's 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 a whole lot of lights going on there so I don't know if that's necessarily 100% accurate to say, right, while you're en route, everything's red, that easy to maintain night vision color, and then you have the flashing yellow. I would think the flashing yellow would not be good for keeping your night vision because it's, you know, bright, it's closer to daylight, that, that yeah, the sunlight, and the green, again, don't even know. I think, I would think the green would be closer to the red in terms of, like, taking it easier on the, on the eyes, but it is, it is a bright green, and like you are saying, it's more bringing out the natural color, which is appropriate because they're about to jump into a whole bunch of natural green with the jungle anything else from that exchange should we move on no i mean i just like it's one more one-liner right they all you almost get numb to it after a while in fact for me one-liners from other people stand out more in this movie than from arnold just because you get so many arnold one-liners but his delivery again of the you never were that smart and he makes it like very clearly stand out that's a you know him on a pedestal for a moment in the movie that one didn't stick with me. It's not something I quote, but again, Arnold, natural one-liner delivery. A great timing with everything. I mean, you have like the sound effects are added, I'm sure later, but you have the visual of the light flashing behind him and it's it's just dings on right after he says it. I, I think that's some wonderful timing. It's that uncanny timing that Arnold's characters seem to have. Yep. Dutch lets Hawkins know that he's up. Uh, soon after that, the lines go out of the chopper and the squad starts repelling out of the chopper. And I was looking up some looking up some information about repelling out of choppers uh, before we talk about the actual squad going down. Um, I was looking up and wondering, like, is this actually called repelling? Is this something else? Like when you really deep dive into things, like, is it called anything else? But this is repelling. It's just different than, say, repelling down a wall in the sense that there's no wall to push off of and the helicopter rotor wash is severely pushing repellers downward so you have a lot more breaking you have to do with your hand as you're repelling you're also going to be descending a lot more quickly and I, I think you see that with the first descender the first repeller who's supposed to be Hawkins but at I believe it's about second 23 you see the first repeller going out incorrectly like going out basically butt first when you're supposed to really kind of almost do this toothpick dive away and out and you kind of you go out and you swoop down sort of yeah, yeah you go out you swoop down with your feet basically pointed you know maybe 30 degrees away from the ground not like keeping your feet up against the chopper as you lower yourself that's that would be more like what a wall repel would look like where you're keeping your 
butt out and down uh, as opposed to your feet. Agreed. And if you're doing a wall rappel with your feet off of the, the landing gear of a chopper and your feet come off, your face is going to go into the landing gear. So I, I tend to agree with you. I watched I watched, I watched a lot of like military training videos. You had, you know, you could see the, the veterans of this exercise doing it and they're just popping right out just naturally and diving right down and breaking themselves like way far down from the chopper than I would feel more comfortable breaking because if you break too far down, you have all that force that's going to be brought on your brake hand. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, they seem to know what they're doing. I would argue the first person, Hawkins, and maybe, I don't know if that's intentional or not. He's definitely like the rookie of the squad, the the baby of the squad going out butt first. So, and his feet just go skyward, you see, for a couple of seconds before he corrects himself. And then everybody else repelling out is doing it more correctly or just doing it more uh, steadily. It's funny. I, I You clearly did the research to really go, is this the way this would really work? I think to a certain extent, there's a desire to make it look like these guys are quick and know what they're doing. But I've actually done a fair amount of uh, rappelling in my past, and the, the big the big thing they're skipping over is that was a three or four second transition when they go from sitting in a chopper to starting to hook up. No <laughs> yeah. way they would have all been hooked up well before they got there. That all that the logistics of that is a lot more work than they make it look like here. And it's funny I didn't really realize uh, until taking a look at some of your notes here that yeah he says Hawkins are up. I kind of assumed Poncho was the first one down being the only Spanish speaker but I like your take on it that no let's send the rookie down just in case he's going to land right on someone with a gun <laughs> plus he's going to get cut first right exactly I was wondering if there's anything to the order I don't think there is other than just like I don't know like the character you're not going to really remember from this movie you go first and then yeah uh, when, when it comes to like the crew landing I made quite a few notes I make, I guess I made like a paragraph worth of notes there uh, but you only see four of the seven land you see Poncho land first, then you see Blaine land next, followed by what appears to be Dylan. I'm going to argue right now that it's not Dylan, that it's a stuntman. And then you have Arnold landing afterwards. And of those four, three of those have military experience. Arnold, Jesse Ventura, and Richard Chavez, which makes sense. Then Dylan, again, I think his stuntman had military experience, but I don't think in any way is that Dylan. They are coming down on separate lines. That's part of or correct procedure, uh, repelling out of a chopper. You don't repel on the same lines. Um, but if they were only reduced to a couple lines, they would have come down from the helicopter, what's known as fast roping, where where it's essentially like you're just sliding down the rope and you're not hooked into the rope, which to me seems terrifying, but it's also um, a way to quickly empty a chopper. They want to quickly empty a chopper. And like you said, they totally cut right to the chase of you're up and then he's bailing out of the chopper. Like there he goes. Yeah. And there, there's no reason to make, to draw that scene out either for the audience's yeah. perspective, but we both know like there would have been a ton of gear coming down those ropes too and all the other stuff. But I still think they do it in a nice crisp way that the best part is, like you said, they go from chatting in a chopper to Europe to on the ground and deploying, ready to go. Yeah, like we and we don't hear any chatter once they once they hit the jungle floor. We just see their like you said, they're they're all business. Um, I do want to give credit to a lot of a lot of the information I was finding about fast roping and repelling came from a site called Sleuthsayers, sleuthsayers.org, their website that dedicates themselves to making sure that people writing different genres of fiction, like military fiction, crime fiction, have their facts straight. And so there'll be uh, on occasion some blog posts on there from quote unquote experts in the field saying like, if this is how it's going to be shown in the book, make sure you have these details right. So I really enjoyed that. The one bugaboo for me watching this scene is like, I mean, and this is just purely technical looking at it as a deep dive. I totally know that, but it bothers me that the lines are just dangling, that they don't have like, it doesn't, right. It's not showing like 
what's anchoring them down or like, you know, do they throw some like heavy gear down attached to these ropes first to anchor it? You know, are they holding, they should be holding each other's lines technically, but that's all just, again, that's all by the wayside. This is all McTiernan just saying, Hey, you know what? They're hopping out of a chopper. They're on the jungle floor. That's all that matters. Well, and then the emphasis from that, from McTiernan and the cinematography standpoint is different, right? They set the mood. You can, again, I like the fact that they don't pick great lighting to see these choppers. It's actually kind of hard to see them when they're jumping out of the, uh, uh, when I first watched it, I was too much. It was wash, washed out lighting on my TV, and I could barely see it. So um, I like that because um, it lets you, you know, it, it's foreboding and all that stuff that comes with it. They are entering this this dark environment, this claustrophobic setting, right? Like as soon as they land, they're like running into trees, leaves. Um, you see fog or mist around. Um, and even when they're like kind of tapping each other, acknowledging each other, like, okay, we're all here. And Arnold's, you know, silently tapping each other, making sure, you know, giving hand signals saying, go this way. They're checking each other's gear. It's, it's all done quietly, but it's all like up close. And like the bodies are all really close to each other, which is continuing that idea of claustrophobia. Like if I'm watching this, I'm like up close with everything. And it's like, there's still no space, even though we just dropped into like a more open space. We, we are totally jam packed in here. And that maybe that claustrophobia is supposed to symbolize like safety or something like that because once things really open up that tends to be when things become a lot more dangerous for the crew well and it's it falls right into them being a professional group of soldiers like we're going to start right on top of each other and immediately secure this immediate area and then start going out our, in our zones from there so uh, a note I talked about with um, Zach last minute about this scene about them dropping out of the chopper uh, this has to be a scene they or this has to be an action this crew has done many times before for many missions but I'm sure it's one that like pumps up the adrenaline over you know over and over again every time they do it um i was wondering is there something like in your line of work or in your life that you do you know appropriate for the podcast that uh pop you know pumps up the adrenaline like every time it happens for me as a teacher i can tell you it's like anytime i'm teaching that first day of school or i'm like teaching in front of parents for a, a parent night even though like i've done it many times before it always like pumps me up uh, adrenaline wise what about you well in my professional career as boring as that may be being in sales um uh, for me, it's really a, a big, important inflection point meeting that there's been a ton of prep for. And I'm meeting with some exec and I know I have to convince him of something like, you know, it's all on the line and just I'm so amped up before it starts. And you're so worried about all the scenarios. You get so emotionally wrapped up. You can't sleep. And then as soon as I'm going, it's fine. It's all gone. Or I've presented in front of a few hundred people before, and that's the same thing. Like the buildup to that is just ridiculous. And then you let off some steam as soon as you start. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I do know what you mean, Bennett. But some steam. Uh, to be... To, to be honest, the bigger, like, short, narrow, just spike adrenaline I've ever had is similar to what they're doing. Like, when I repel, I'm not a huge fan of heights. And when I've, when I've repelled off a platform, like, getting to the starting point is brutal. And then repelling, you're just, you're all of a sudden viscerally involved and you're not you're not like adrenalized over the anticipation or like jumping off a cliff into the water same sort of thing like it's all about the build-up and then it's over so yeah no i totally get what you're saying i guess i have repelled a couple times i repelled back in the boy scout days down a wall 
And then when um, my wife, Sarah, and I took a group of students to Europe, one of the big selling points was we're going to do all these cool things in all these different European countries, kids, and we're also going to rappel down a castle. And that was like one of the big selling points, probably one of like the, the first or the second big selling point for that trip that we're trying to sell students on. Uh, to go during the summer. And Sarah and I also rappelled down that castle in Wales, I, I believe it was. And yeah, the, all the adrenaline was like waiting your turn, kind of making your way up the stairs Knowing for it's coming. an hour. And then like you're hooked up to the harness, you're looking at the instructor. In this case, it was these um, very, very excitable uh, New Zealanders. They were the ones who were running kind of this summer camp basically in Wales. And they're like, yeah, you can do it. Here's what you do. And like they're... <laughs> It's a terrible New Zealand accent. I'll work on that. Anyway, so, so the whole thing was was you just follow their instructions. And then even though I had the adrenaline going, I, that's the one thing I remember was like with my feet up on the parapet, you know, hooked into the harness, just looking at the instructor and listen to their instructions, even though it was super stressful and super adrenalized. As soon as they said, you know, what to do, you know, you just did it like one step at a time. And I backed right off. And, and once I was descending, like you're saying, just like once you're presenting or teaching, you know, once you're on that line, like us old pros, once you're on that line, it's just like, ah, just naturally descend at the rate that you've been instructed to do so. Well, it may be a little nuanced, but I know every time I've dealt with that kind of adrenaline or anticipation or anxiety, usually my go-to is humor to diminish it. Um, obviously, they don't use it, so they all just have to kind of stew in their own crockpot of fear or whatever it is and then execute, but they're used to it. That The point is they probably, that that water rolls off those ducks' backs, so to speak. I know last time I went rappelling, the guy that we were in Jamaica and the guy that was about three in front of me was noticing some fray on the ropes and asked the guy, hey, <laughs> how often do you change these? It wasn't bad. But he, his answer was, when it breaks, man. <laughs> <laughs> but it yeah, was a joke, right? A, Everyone was like, ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is... One further line of dialogue you hear between the choppers, which in the audio sounds like eyes away. But when I did some research into repelling procedures in the Forest Service, the Forest Service repelling guide says that they're saying lines away. And the, the whole thing they would be saying, the whole exchange would be lines are away, clear to, clear to depart. Then you'd have the response from the other pilot, lines away, clear, clear to depart. Then the Feedback is affirmative lines are clear, clear to, to depart. So the, the choppers are checking each other out? Yeah. So you have the spotter, you know, the spotter chopper, the gunship, basically, you know, because if you're in the if you're in the, the repelling chopper, you're not going to be able to see um, how clear you are of right obstacles or if um, all your lines are not tangled with one another. We have that spotter communicating, hey, you're, you're all clear. And it sounds like they're going for, again, that kind of authenticity. Which I which I enjoy. It's it's fun to be able to look up these little extra things. So they're in the jungle. They're you know tapping each other. They're doing their prep work now. They're they're on the jungle floor. How much I love uh, Alan Silvestri. Basically, as soon as you see the the close up camera angles of them de descending into the jungle and landing on the ground, you just get this real subtle three or four seconds of wah 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 like that that sound that really just sets the stage for they've now entered something new. They, there's a inflection point and i don't i can't help but feel like to me the sound kind of denotes only from the, the fact that i know what's going to happen you've entered the game like it feels like they are now officially they are now in the predator's world and are combatants and therefore are prey and that denotes that they whether or not they're aware of it yet they have entered the game 
makes me makes me think do they have just like extra senses that kick in when they hit the floor here in the jungle about like are are they aware that they're entering this dangerous ground and i'm sure they are with number of missions and the probably the variety of missions they've taken on they, they probably just automatically kick in that you know that danger radar and they are just extra sensitive to any kind of new noises or any kind of sights uh, but yeah this is alan sylvester again this is the just a real quick snippet like you're saying just a few seconds of the track titled jungle track and we hear jungle track over the next few minutes as they are making their way to the crash chopper but yeah you can find it on youtube and listen to it some and it's yeah, it's it's a nice foreboding sound like you're saying. It's like you're pressing start in the the video game. Like, all right, I'm in I'm in stage one of Contra, or <laughs> you know I'm you know I'm entering the battle or entering the the danger zone. You're entering the first stage of Contra, but you only have one life. <laughs> but you only have one life. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I again just the now that I pay attention to it, the the potency of just a few notes. It's it's really does a great job of setting a tone setting you up getting you ready for whatever's going to happen and it's just like all their own you know and they've 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 touched down and uh they're checking each other's gear with the, with the music on there and then the music fades out by the end of the minute because right they're like on their way and maybe like the maybe the, maybe that's to indicate also like maybe their adrenaline's like dying down and it's like letting the muscle memory uh take over like okay there's no, there's nothing too you know exciting after we've landed like and we know where we're going and it's like we have our bearings and right we have our direction maybe it's like business as usual and that's not nearly as uh frantic or scary to them yeah no and i i just looking back at my notes the other thing that um i think the anticipation and the adrenaline we're talking before uh one thing i took a note of is they're going into the middle of nowhere into the middle of a silent jungle that is only going to have jungle sounds with these two incredibly loud choppers right and after the music fades out, you really kind of get at you hear the choppers again, the loud rotor sounds of the choppers as they depart. And from a, uh, a, a military team like that, they got to be on point. Like anyone who's around knows they're there. So that, that I think is another big part of the anticipation and the music and all that. That's, that's, that's a good point because right, you, you, as low as those choppers might be, like they're making unmistakable sound there. You know, anybody around for miles is going to, recognize that sound of Huey's moving and then hovering and the hovering, you know, someone's going to probably cue into like, Oh, there's like someone, you know, maybe they're dropping something off. Um, Those aren't Skeeters. Right. Those aren't, those aren't Skeeters. They're a lot more potent. Um, One thing I noticed that I didn't make a note of, but um, I imagine these lines have to have some kind of tensile strength. So they have to have some kind of limit to how much they can carry. And you have these huge, huge burly guys, including Jesse Ventura, who's carrying, a minigun and who's carrying probably at least a hundred pounds of ammunition. More than that. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably probably more than that. So old old sold if we're looking at, you know, the wrestler being between like two fifty and three hundred pounds and like the minigun itself in a burlap sack like in his lap basically being like another hundred pounds at least and backpack 150 pounds uh, you're looking at what is that like five hundred pounds just like coming down that line. Those are like some in in the chopper scene right there before they start repelling you can see like just how thin those lines are i don't, I don't know if that line is holding it or just just the magic it's just the magic strength of of movie mctiernan didn't show it but actually the second chopper was <laughs> for jesse <laughs> <laughs>
Sick <laughs> chopper, yeah. Had like a had like the bay doors to open under it, like beep beep, just like it's dropping a big bomb. It's dropping, it's yeah. Dropping well, the... they actually show the gunship and the minigun uh, guarding the the personnel chopper, but maybe Jesse was in there and just kind of detached the minigun and brought it down with him. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because once it once he lands, yeah, you can like clearly see it's just it's double this duffel he's carrying in front of him, and you see it later when he's moving through the jungle. I, I did take this note. I wanted to check with you. Are those the same two helicopters that are the original two that bring them in? Uh, that's a good question. Well, there's only the one that brings them in initially to the beach in minute one slash minute two that they're hopping off of because um, the Huey's meant to fit all of them. The Huey's meant to fit, I think, up to 15 people is what our researcher's telling us. So that is possibly supposed to be the same one. Um, I wasn't really sure. That's that's a really good question because if I zip if I zipped back to minute one and then look back here. I think I was associating two choppers in minute one from Andrew, uh, your Aaron talking about the two different types of choppers that are in this movie. And that got me thinking they were both in the scene. My bad. Yeah. Well, these are both Hueys and then the different Huey that, or the different chopper we saw was called a jet Ranger. And that was on the beach. What Aaron and I were theorizing is that they're actually using that smaller chopper, the jet Ranger to capture the shots. When you see both choppers on the screen, and then you're thinking, Oh, they must to be another helicopter and i don't know because the one that they're repelling out of does not have rocket pods and the one they came in on alternated shots between it either had rocket pods or did not have rocket pods so it really could be it'd be cool if there's like some designation on the on the tail to tell you like the id of this chopper but if there is that is not clear enough again they don't need rocket pods one big chaw spit from <laughs> jesse could take <laughs> out another aircraft sexual tyrannosaurus oh and a uh, real quick pickup line here or catch up line is that someone on Facebook was mentioning like because um Jeff and I were theorizing about what sexual tyrannosaurus can mean <laughs> and we didn't we didn't really dive into the details as much but um someone corrected whoops someone brought up on Facebook and messaged me saying that well you know sexual tyrannosaurus is like this huge beast right it's like it's unmistakable that's what he means he's like this huge hulking beast sexually speaking and then to me, I was as I was doing some thinking about it, I was thinking, well, like Tyrannosaurus is, is clearly like the predator of the dinosaurs, right? It's like out of all the dinosaurs, that's what people pinpoint as the predator. So I thought, you know, maybe that's some accidental line reading, you know, but at the same time, right, the whole movie's based around uh, a hunter and its prey or, you know, the predator and its prey. So maybe it's just chalking up to, to more through lines of mention things that r remind you of, of this, this, these creatures hunting each other. Absolutely. Short arms, no foreplay. I think the only note I have left over for this minute is Dylan had a little bit extra line in the script where after he said, you don't know how much I, how, you don't know how much I miss this Dutch. He goes on to say, once you get this in your blood, you never get it out. And then Dutch even has like a short little two word. Let's go after he says, you never were all that smart. So there's not a lot added by the script or there wasn't a lot of taken um, out of the script from um, when they filmed the movie, but it's just, further proof that less is more and usually it's john mctiernan in the commentary experience uh saying you know let's cut that line let's cut this line and even arnold himself i guess was a big advocate for having fewer lines where the actions can tell you more of the story if you're paying attention well and there's it's shorter and more concise but also that's a different line so you don't know how much i miss this dutch versus what he says in the movie never knew how much i miss this dutch it it's one is re rhetoric one is more, Arnold doesn't know. 
it, it's subtle, but it matters, right? I think it's better the way it was executed for sure. Yeah, because the way it comes off in the script is like saying, hey, Dutch, you don't know how much I missed this versus in the movie. It's him saying like the way he says never knew how much I missed this. I, I assume he's saying like myself, like I didn't realize how much, you know, I look forward to this this action jumping out of a chopper into the jungle on a mission. But then, like you said, the choppers take off. So all that talk about, you know, there's not being any backup that's really punctuated here with the choppers leaving and then uh, the jungle sounds taking over, like our first all natural environment where we're, we're not in the palapas, we're not in the huts on the beach, we're not in a chopper, we're not in jeeps, we're just on foot and we're, we're, we're entering the jungle. Welcome to the jungle, baby. You're gonna die. <laughs> Other notes, uh, anything else stand out to you in this minute, Scotty? No, again, I love... I just love the subtlety. When I actually got my own minute here to work on with you and focus on everything, I just noticed more and more in the less that McTiernan uses in this movie, and it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Um, any thoughts about previous minutes, about you know things you weren't around for, like the epic handshake, long, tall Sally, the yeah. chopper ride with all the interactions? I think I mentioned before, like you get kind of numb to Arnold and all of his one-liners. So for me, the one-liners in this movie that really stand out the most come from Jesse. I really just, I really love his character, Blaine. I, I loved the epic handshake minute. Actually, a guy uh, at the gym I go to, I started telling him about this podcast and he was so excited. Oh. We immediately, he ran and grabbed a chalk bucket and he's like, let's do the handshake. So... It just, it cra- he's like doing it with chalk. It makes it so much better. Um, and then I oh, love, awesome. I love the chopper ride, you know, the whole sexual Tyrannosaurus, Jesse Ventura. And uh, yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to hopefully being involved again. Uh, if I can, uh, it's a great movie and I love dissecting it and um, I love everything about it. So uh, I really have enjoyed the podcast. It got me looking at things uh, a lot differently, especially the early minutes, how you had to spend so much time talking about credits. It opened up a whole mm-hmm. world of nuance and connections that I didn't really realize exist. And I really enjoyed that. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks for the positive feedback, bro. I appreciate that. Do you have a favorite scene or a favorite line? Let's just go with favorite line. Do you have a favorite line from the movie? Because there's so many lines in this movie. Either Arnold calling the predator an ugly son of a bitch or um, Jesse and Poncho's interaction on I Ain't Got Time to Bleed. I think he says you're one ugly mother effort. Yeah, he does. I, I was trying to keep it. <laughs> A little more. Oh, we've we, we, we've been swearing where necessary. For the okay, podcast, well, so if they swear in the movie, then I'll be saying those are the lines. But my favorite piece of this movie is really just how they keep adding to the um, potency of the predator in layers. Like when you realize, oh my god, he can see them no matter what. He can see heat. Like the movie keeps you out in front of the characters in terms of understanding what's happening and how big a trouble they're in with regard to the predator. And I just. I, I love that because it comes in little pieces throughout the whole first half of the movie. So, I, I yeah, it's great. Uh, where can people find you online, Scott? Unfortunately, I think I'm a little bit of a hermit. Um, you can find me watching DVDs of Arnold Schwarzenegger at home. But uh, <laughs> my online presence is pretty uh, work-oriented. I don't put a lot of content out there, unfortunately. But if you do want to find me, you can just look up Scott. Fogel, F-O-G-L-E, on uh, LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook and uh, see how boring I really am. <laughs> I like the. Hey, you can find me watching some Arnold movies on DVD I, at home. I, I love the <laughs> I, fact yeah. that I'm like, all going through all of them, man, Running Man. I think you need to do a mi- um, uh, Running Man Minute. Oh, Running Man Minute, that'd be fun. Um, I'm a big Total Recall fan. I like that and I like... I like uh, the Terminator a lot more than, than I like Terminator 2. And I like, I love Last Action Hero, you know, another 
John McTiernan movie. That's... You actually hearing you and your brother talk about Last Action Hero put it on my list of I need to go back and rewatch that because I really only saw it in the theaters and haven't seen it since. Yeah, it's it's one of those two part movies where the first half, in my opinion, is just awesome, a hundred percent self aware action and, and you know looking right at the camera, winking, full knowing what it's doing, and then yeah, it takes a dive down when Arnold enters the real world through the movie screen with the magic ticket. But it has its moments even in the second half that I feel. I definitely um, don't think I would want to do a kindergarten cop minute or uh, whatever the Batman is where he's Dr. Freeze. Oh, yeah, Batman and Robin. <laughs> the Ice Age. <laughs> That's right. But uh, no, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to join this and would be happy to do so again. Awesome. Yeah, we'd love to have you again. And hopefully Aaron can be co-host again soon so we can start wrangling our guests along with uh, our two hosts that would be great predator minute is on twitter at predator minute we are on facebook at predator minute podcast you can find the podcast on soundcloud itunes google play stitcher other podcatching apps and services Uh, if you have been in a repelling into the jungle scene out of a helicopter let us know Uh, email us predator minute at gmail.com and for predator minute I've been John. And this is Scott. And until next time. Get to the chopper! <laughs> 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 <laughs>